At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Okay, ladies, so we're back with a really interesting story and property for everyone today. But first, I have a couple of housekeeping items. Um, It's sort of an exciting day here. It is the first recording that we are doing since we dropped our first five episodes. And I just wanted to send a thank you to everyone that has reached out and sent us like really supportive text and phone calls. It has been so fun to hear from people like from our past. Melanie, I think you heard from like an old high school friend or something. Oh, um, uh, actually a friend from, um, well, I met her here in Dallas, but from DC. And she called me up and she's like, I just wanted to call you because I heard your voice on the podcast oh, this morning. And so I wanted nice. to hear it live. And I was like, oh. That's really But sweet. yeah, no, definitely been getting messages from uh, high school friends from uh, to uh co-workers of mine, to folks that are uh, parents of other of our classmates or our kids' classmates. Well, and everybody's had great ideas too. So we we love that you guys are sending those in. We're, we're compiling them and you're giving us lots of good material for later. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds really cliche, but like and subscribe. That's it. The, the boys' YouTube videos are always like, like and subscribe. So yeah. please, and if you like it, leave a review. Yeah, we would really appreciate that. And also, it's exciting because this is the last day recording in our temporary space. You guys have been so gracious making it work and recording amongst my boxes and in the midst of our move. But uh, hopefully the sound will be better in our new quote unquote studio. And, uh, <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited to get moved in. Yeah. Did you too. order our wine refrigerator and Oh, we have all the stuff? wine refrigerators. Okay. We are set. In the recording studio. Uh, well, no, but you know what I am going to have for you? I'm going to have tahine for Woo-hoo! your ranch Yay! water. So Exciting. Yeah. Lap of luxury. <laughs> and then we're going to go out to the pool afterwards. That's right. That's right. We'll make this a, instead of a lunch podcast, it'll be an all-day podcast. Yeah. All-evening podcast. All right. Well, ladies, this week we are traveling to Houston. And I'm just curious, you know, I think we've mentioned everybody. We live in Dallas. Um, but what do you think of when you think of Houston? Well, I grew up in Houston, and although I grew up in the suburbs, and so a little bit of a different kind of experience in the suburbs, but I think of humidity um, and mosquitoes, and I think of oil, mostly oil. Yeah. Elena, what about you? I think of oil and oil rigs and steers and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's me too. You know, Houston is about four hours south of the Dallas Metroplex, and it really is known for being an oil town. I always think about hurricanes, um, you know, have you, oh, yeah. were you ever in a hurricane in Houston, Melanie? Um, not so much in a hurricane, but definitely like the tropical bands that would come around uh, my, you know, my parents, my hometown has been flooded many, many times. My parents have never been flooded, but basically almost everyone else in the, in the community has been flooded. And it was a lot of times the hurricane bands that would go over the river and the lakes and then kind of flood the community. My old high school apparently was really flooded after, yeah, well, after I graduated. Easily. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what year it was, but my husband was stuck in a hurricane in Houston and it was right after Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think everybody had said like, why didn't they evacuate? Why didn't they evacuate? In hindsight, being 2020. And so everybody evacuated mm-hmm. Houston 
and they just got stuck on the side of the road. So I, I that's that's my Houston story. Like every time I think about Houston, I think about the hurricanes and, and him getting stuck. And, you know, it makes sense that hurricanes come to mind when we're talking about Houston because it's not far from the Gulf of Mexico. And it really is sort of a humid, swampy climate. I would say similar to that of New Orleans, mm-hmm. if you've ever been to New Orleans. Yeah, definitely. It's very similar. It's only about six hours away, but it is like also on the coast, yeah, hugging it. So climate-wise, it's really not Very that similar. different. Yeah. Frizzy hair, frizzy hair climate. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's the worst. But winter is lovely. <laughs> winter is great. Spring is usually really nice as well. Um, but yeah, summertimes, you want to have a place in Montana. Got it. Okay. Well, for those of you not familiar with Texas history, the 1980s were a very rough period for Houston. An oil boom and subsequent bust was responsible for the layoff of over 200,000 people. And many people who had come to Houston for work in the oil fields packed up and left town. However, by the mid-1990s, when our story is set, Houston is once again booming. Let me paint you a picture of 1990s Houston. Melanie, you were probably there at the time. Yeah, I think I think the story might have been when I was in college, a little bit later 90s. But yeah, I mean, I definitely grew up in the 90s. All right. So... Also, Beyonce is growing up in Houston at the time. She is in high school at the Houston High School for the Performing and Visual Arts. The Houston Rockets were two-time NBA champions. And President George H.W. Bush, that was the first one, and his wife Barbara have just built a retirement home in the upscale neighborhood of River Oaks. And it's in this River Oaks neighborhood that our story is set. The Compass Real Estate website describes River Oaks as Houston's most regal neighborhood, River Oaks has long been synonymous with luxury. Situated within the 610 loop between downtown and uptown, it was the city's first master plan community and has long attracted Houston's affluent and socially prominent residents. It's well-named, tree-filled neighborhood with majestic oaks and picturesque thoroughfares throughout. Bordered by the Buffalo Bayou and dotted with dense and mature trees, the neighborhood is loaded with street after street, of impeccably maintained yards and opulent estates with extraordinary gardens. It goes on to say that the neighborhood is made up of a smattering of architectural styles, from English Tudor to Spanish colonial revival, and the neighborhood's original homes from the 20s and 30s are now mixed in with modern builds that are just as grand in both size and sophistication. Sounds lovely. Yeah, I would say the kind of the analogy in Dallas would be like Highland Park. Okay. So it's here we find Doris and Bob Angleton at 3031 Ella Lee Lane. This is a five-bedroom, five-and-a-half-bath home with a little over 5,300 square feet. And this 1940s house is a stately red brick Tudor with a circle drive in front. Now, you might remember us chatting about Tudor-style homes in our first episode about John Benet Ramsey. This style of home became really popular in the 1910s and 1920s in the United States. And interestingly enough, when this style first became popular, these homes were nicknamed stockbroker tutors because the materials needed to construct these homes were more expensive than many people could afford post-depression. All right, so Bob and Doris Angleton met at a party when Doris was still married to her first husband. And according to their friends at the party, Bob was so smitten with Doris that he later went up to her husband and said, hey, anytime you decide to get rid of that pretty lady, I want to know about it. Oh, okay. Can you imagine? Mm-mm. What would your husband do if somebody said that to him? I think he'd laugh. I think it'd be funny. I think. Okay. Yeah. I have to ask him later. 
So a few months later, Bob learns that Doris and her husband are actually divorcing, and he calls her up and asks her to dinner. And the rest, they say, is history. The two married in 1982 and two years later had twin girls and not long after purchased their home at 3031 LLE Lane, paying cash for the $650,000 property. Now, they say opposites attract, and that must have been the case with Bob and Doris. Bob was the son of a Greek immigrant who had made his fortune by starting a building business in New Jersey. Bob was a large man with a brusque personality. He didn't like small talk, and he was not particularly friendly. Doris, on the other hand, was very social and beautiful. She had grown up south of Houston and went to the University of Texas at Austin. She had strong social skills that enabled the Angletons to break into the River Oaks social scene. Now, to the outside world, Alana, Bob was a hard worker. He was known to work 18-plus hour days, and he would go to the beach with beepers attached to his swimsuit. He was never far from his phone. Evasive about his business, he often told people that he was a real estate investor, owning a golf course west of Houston, a shopping center and a health and wellness club, along with other investment properties. And that was true, but he was really making his living by being a bookie. A police source told the Houston Chronicle that he was handling 20 to $40 million in bets a year. Dang. That is a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's crazy. But I think it's funny that real estate investor, that does seem like one of those things where you don't really want, need to ask too many questions. That kind of speaks for itself. So you don't have to like divulge a lot of information. No, yeah. A, a and I guess developer. he was using some of his, you know, ill-gotten gains to invest in right, real estate. Right. It makes me think of Ozark, mm. where they're taking their money and investing it in legal businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Laundering. Laundry. Yeah. Laundering. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So obviously, with that amount of money came a life of privilege for his family. They were members at the Briar Club, which is an exclusive tennis and swim club in River Oaks. At the Houston Astros games, the family sat in the diamond box just behind the Astros on deck circle. And his girls attended an elite private school and took equestrian lessons. By all accounts, the family was living a picture-perfect life, despite the fact that the source of their wealth was coming from illegal activities. However, by 1997, Doris decided to file for divorce. According to friends of theirs who were interviewed for a Texas Monthly article, Bob could be both entirely devoted and giving and harsh and vindictive at the same time. According to them, he rarely said please or thank you, and he often snapped at Doris over minor incidents. During softball games, he would berate his daughters if they made mistakes, causing other spectators in the stands to wince in embarrassment. Unbeknownst to many of her friends and family, Doris had checked out of the marriage years before filing for divorce, telling them that she thought she could maintain the relationship by focusing on her girls. But as they got older and needed her less, it was apparent that the relationship just wasn't going to work. So in 1996, a year before the divorce, Doris started spending time in an AOL over 40s chat room. Oh, I remember AOL. I know. Blast from the past, yeah. right? I still have an AOL email address. You do not. My Stop. parents still have one. Yeah, it's my husband and I's joint email address, <laughs> like our family. So basically, it's what's connected to all, you know, all the random emails that you get. And whenever I have to give it to someone per, in live, and, oh, and, and I'll, I'll give it to them and then go at AOL.com. I, I feel like obligated to say something like, we've had it like for 25 years or, <laughs> you know, it's an oldie but goodie. Like I, I have to make a running joke Can you still about log into AOL? I, I, yes, I could log in right now. It's on my phone too. <laughs> That's crazy. 
So, yeah. So my husband and I did long distance relationship for two years while he was in law school and I was finishing up college. And I could still have this like visceral emotional reaction when I hear the ding of the AOL instant messenger because that's how we communicated a lot. So you just, you know, you had the volume way up on your computer so that when it would ding, you could like run in and see what he had typed. A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's good. Yeah, it's kind of an embarrassment right now. But it's like, you know, it's it's retro. I mean, it's at this point in time, we've had it's it for so, cool. so it's retro. long. Yeah. I mean, and it's what like all of our old passwords or everything is set to that it's kind of would take a lot of work to actually untangle it now. I'm dying over here. That's hilarious. I know, because we are actually kind of usually early adopters with technology. You are, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. We have lots of technology in our household. It just, and my husband does works in technology, but no, we still have AOL. That's hilarious. Okay, well, not surprisingly, Doris is in this AOL chat room and she meets someone and they start having a relationship online. And by late 1996, Doris has fallen for this married stockbroker who lives in the Northeast. The two were secretly meeting on weekends. So Doris and Bob's divorce is moving forward and appears to everybody to be amicable. The two agreed that Bob would continue to live in the house through the end of the spring semester at school when they would tell the girls, who are now 12, about the divorce. And I'd like to just pause for a second and say this is the second story we've had where there has been a divorce Mm -hmm. where the parents decided to continue living together Mm -hmm. in some aspect. Remember we had— Right, um, Um, the the high-rise. The high-rise, that's right. Um, Shelley Kovlin in New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so that takes us all to the day of the crime, April 16th, 1997. And really, this is a weekend day like any other. Doris drops off the twins at their softball game. And like the devoted dad that he is, Bob is one of the coaches. Now, Bob had recently purchased a special bat for his daughter, and realizing that he doesn't have it, he asked Doris to run back home and pick it up. Doris readily agrees. She had just finished an exercise class and says she wants to change before the game anyway. So she leaves the game and heads back home. However, she never returns to the ball field with the new bat. After the game, Bob and his daughters pull into the driveway and see Doris's car parked in its normal spot. But Bob notices that the side door of their home is slightly open. Now, I'm trying to put myself in this situation. If I pulled into the driveway with my kids in the car and the door was open and my spouse was, quote unquote, missing, you know, or not where I thought mm-hmm. they would be. What would I do? Alana, what do you think you would do? If I just pulled into the driveway and the, the car door was ajar and Aaron wasn't in there, I think I'd be mad. Like, oh my God, there, he just left the door open again. <laughs> I just ran inside, left the door open again. I'd be mad at him. Yeah. That's me. So you would just expect that there was something normal going right. on and yeah. there was a reason. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Especially in the middle of a day, like a Saturday. I Yeah. No, I mean, I would have thought that my spouse had gotten busy Um, maybe was moving something out to the car and was inside and, you know, and left the door open because they were going back and forth, bringing something. Um, And I'd be like, yeah, the the last thing I would probably think was it was nefarious unless there was some like underlying reason or if it was the middle of the night. Well, Mm -hmm. and I think that's to the point, like you think horses, not zebras, right? Like you go to the most obvious answer mm-hmm, mm-hmm, of what mm-hmm. you think yeah. is occurring. And really, you're just annoyed with your spouse that they didn't oh, do it. Yeah. You asked, it I'd be like, they got distracted. Is my and, dog getting out? <laughs> exactly. So Bob, however, decides to sit in the car with his daughters and call 911. A police officer shows up within minutes, and as he walks into the house, his foot hits a shell mm-hmm. casing. He finds Doris Angleton lying on the floor of the kitchen with bullet casings surrounding her body. 
In total, she had been shot 12 times, seven shots to the head and five shots to the body, and the police could not find any indication that she had fought with her attacker. So the police officer goes back outside and pulls Bob aside to tell them, tell him and his daughters that Doris has passed away. Super fishy. Mm-hmm. Now, who were the suspects in this crime? Obviously, the spouse is always the first suspect, right? But Bob has an airtight alibi. He was coaching his daughter's softball game in front of the team and, like, all of their parents. So, and, Bob— And so, the, I'm sorry to interrupt. So, it's a small window of opportunity that this occurred because she dropped her daughters off at the game, and then they're coming home after the game. You that's know? right. So, a couple but, hours tops. Like, yeah. Okay. On a— you know, Saturday in the middle of the day in this very affluent neighborhood. Yeah, and I, I'm fairly familiar with uh, River Oaks, or at least I would go there to go to the River Oaks shopping center was kind of where we would go have like ladies lunch. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, this is a very nice, not, I mean, while it's centrally located in the city, you know, it's not the type of place you would find a lot of crime at all. Maybe yeah. robberies, um, but definitely not in the middle of the daytime kind of right. uh, issues. So Bob suggests to the police that another bookie is responsible for her murder. Apparently in 1985, Bob was arrested for bookmaking and cut a deal with the police to turn in the other bookies in Houston in exchange for not serving any time for his own arrest. So this worked out great for him personally and really professionally as, you know, the more bookies he took out of the game, mm -hmm. the more clients he had for himself. So he suggests that maybe one of these rival bookies murdered Doris in retaliation. So for weeks, stories raced through River Oaks that the killing was either the work of a vengeful rival bookie or the desperate act of a despondent gambler whom Angleton had been pressuring to pay up. It was said that Houston's Asian-American mobsters who had wanted to expand their own bookmaking business were after him, or perhaps it was even the mafia. Lisa also looked at her internet lover. This concept, you know, of meeting someone online is still so new that Doris's friends are really worried about her and they tell the police about this internet boyfriend as a possible suspect. So after the murder, you know, the police look into this man and he had signed off the internet and did not resurface, which looks a little bit suspicious. Mm -hmm. But in reality, I think he was just terrified that his life was about to be blown apart. He ends up calling the Houston police and is interviewed by them over the phone. And given that interview, the police do not think he is a suspect at all. Now, with the murder still unsolved, a group of Doris's friends, known as the River Oaks Nancy Drews, began meeting almost weekly for dinner to discuss what had happened. That's weird. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of the only murders in the building people who are oh, getting together to discuss the murder. Right, right. But they didn't They're know. They're going to solve it on their own. This screws me up because they're her friends. That creeps me out. Well, no. One of the uh, one of the um, only murders, the uh, Selena. Go, oh, go. well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, that's she true. was like childhood friends with I'm the guy. I'm saying if I'm ever, you know, murdered like that, you don't, don't form a group called the Nancy Drews. Oh, see, we were already on it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we would have that group formed. <laughs> I already know a handful of people that I would invite. I mean, Heather, <laughs> we would be investing. Not our you first, first mini planned. <laughs> I thought you were uh, going to be like happy. Like that we were not going to get rest. it done. Don't, no cute names. Just, just figure it out. Okay. No cute okay. names. Yeah. Okay. okay. No okay. cute names. All right. Got it. <laughs> so most of their questions revolved around Bob. Um you know, they said if he was really worried about Doris, wouldn't he have rushed into the house when he saw the open door? Or, you know, was it more logical for him to be cautious since he did have the girls with him? 
Was it possible that he told Doris about the softball bat as a way to make sure she went back to the house? But if so, then why did Bob voluntarily tell the police about the softball bat in the first place? Um, You know, wouldn't the story, wouldn't that have been a part of the story that he would have wanted to hide? So the rumors got so thick in the community that Angleton took the extraordinary step of having a letter passed out to parents at one of the girls' softball games. In part, it read, Doris and I were living together in a friendly and loving relationship that always kept our children's best interests foremost in our minds. I still love my wife very deeply, and I am grieving more than anyone can imagine. I think that sounds nice. I mean, it does sound nice. I feel bad for his daughters. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the they've just lost their mother and the rumors are swirling so much right. that it has to be impacting mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. What what was the age range of the girls at this time? They were time? like 12 or 13. Yeah, yeah because I, I had uh, looked them up and, and they went to a Greek Orthodox uh, private school in Houston. And I actually recall because uh, that, that church and that... Um, uh, school had an amazing Greek festival that I would go to with some friends um, during high school, and we would always uh, drive down every year to to that. I just thought that was kind of interesting that people don't realize in, in Houston is exceptionally diverse. There is a huge Vietnamese community. Um, you know, the, there, apparently there's a small Greek Orthodox community. Uh, one of the things that you never really realize at Houston, but I think it was because of the ship channel that a lot of folks would come into Houston. Well, and if you go back to like the oil days, you know, they yeah. were bringing people from all over the country oh, yeah. to work the oil derricks as well. So absolutely. So looking to give the police another suspect or, you know, any other leads, Bob mentions his brother, Roger. I'd like Mm. to have a side note here and say I have an Uncle Bob and an Uncle Roger that are brothers. And so when I was researching the story, I had to really like put it very clearly on paper. It's like, is it Bob or is it Roger this time? (laughs) Anyway, so let me give you a little bit of background on these brothers. Roger Angleton is six years older than Bob, and he had actually moved to Houston to be a real estate agent. He was apparently quite eccentric and fell onto hard times in the late 80s. So Bob brought Roger into the bookie business, but he didn't really like Roger's tactics, and he fired him. Roger tried to rob Bob of a suitcase full of cash at one point in order to get from Bob what he felt he was owed. They have a loving relationship, can you tell? So in December of 1990, this is seven years before the murder occurred, Bob meets Roger in a parking lot outside of a mortgage company to discuss a real estate closing that Roger was handling for Bob. Bob says that Roger got in the car, aimed a stun gun at him, and demanded the $200,000 in cash he knew that Bob was carrying with him for this closing. Dang. Have you ever had anybody show up at closing with cash in a suitcase? No. 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 That would terrify me. I can make a joke about that. Like, don't come with a suitcase full of cash. Yeah. A cashier's check or a wire is just fine. (laughs) Okay. Bob says he punched Roger and then Roger grabbed the briefcase he mistakenly thought contained the money and jumped out of the car. When he later realized he didn't get the cash, Roger called Doris and told her that if Bob didn't pay him, he was going to give the authorities documentation that would get her husband thrown in jail. What's more, after the parking lot incident, Roger began calling some of Bob's best clients, pretending to be the IRS agent, and asking them if they could meet to talk about Bob Angleton, a surefire method to scare them away. Bob says he had no choice but to pay Roger in order to save his business. 
So in return for Roger's silence, Bob agrees to make a $12,000 down payment and then send $2,500 a month from February 1991 until February 1993 to a post office box in San Diego where Roger had moved. Bob says that he never tried to contact his brother again after that. And in early 1997, so here we are four years later, Roger sends Bob a letter telling him that he wanted $200,000 in order to keep quiet about Bob's bookie business. In part, the letter read, If I don't hear from you agreeing to the $200,000, I am coming there and will make you pay dearly. I will hurt you in a way that will be with you for the rest of your life. The letter, Bob insists, came six weeks before Doris's murder. And Houston police are able to verify through credit card receipts that Roger was, in fact, in Houston at the time of Doris's murder. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Super fishy. So the police, however, could not find Roger in order to question him until they got a lucky break in July. So about three months after the crime occurred. The police go out to San Diego where Roger is living with his girlfriend. And while they are questioning her... They search the house and find a treasure trove of information. Of note is another briefcase, all these briefcases in this story, (laughs) is another briefcase that Roger is carrying that contains $64,242 in cash and several paper money wrappers, one of which they will later learn had Bob's fingerprints on it. Several notes, including one typewritten page that detailed the gate code, the alarm code, and other information about the Angleton house. The notes seem to lay out how exactly a murder should be committed. Let the dog out, wait in kitchen. Subject comes home, hit immediately. If with either girl, leave via back entrance. Leave gate open or leave sign in front of house that it is done. Also in the briefcase is a copy of Doris's daily schedule and a schedule of the twins' softball games along with a tape recording of two men discussing how to disarm an alarm system. The conversation between the two men, assumed to be Roger and Bob, discusses the same alarm code that the Angletons use for their house alarm and also refers hypothetically to a woman by the name of Doris. Chillingly enough, they discuss ways to kill this person and one voice says, the first gunshot has to be the money. See what I mean? That's wild. Isn't that crazy? Dumb. But real dumb. Super dumb. I mean, isn't that the smoking gun? <laughs> like, you have yeah. a recording, you have complete information. Like, where no. would they have gotten the softball schedule from? I mean, Melanie, one would think. We, we've learned our lesson in the past. Do mm-hmm. not assume that a rich person can, uh, get mm. a, you know, does not get away with murder. That's right. So, based on this new information, the police now suspect that Bob hired Roger to do the killing. According to the type notes, the hitman was to be paid nearly $1 million. They also suspect that it was always Bob's plan to point the finger at Roger in order to take the suspicion off of himself. And if you think about it from Bob's standpoint, it's really a way to kill two birds with one stone. You know, it got rid of Doris and any looming like financial audits that would have occurred as the result of their divorce. And it got rid of his blackmailing brother. However, Bob didn't anticipate that Roger would secretly tape one of their conversations, and this ultimately led to both men being arrested in August of 1997. And Melanie and Alana, if you think the story has had some twists and turns up until now, just wait. Both men were arrested in a murder-for-hire plot about four months after Doris was killed, 
And while the brother, Roger, was in custody, he began a series of interviews with a true crime author, with a true crime author, Vanessa Leggett. He told her that Bob was going to pay him $1 million over the course of 10 years for killing Doris. And he admitted to taping the conversations between himself and Bob as a form of leverage. Now, given that Bob was the suspected mastermind behind the crime, prosecutors were ready to offer Roger a plea deal. However, Roger killed himself in his jail cell before that happened. He had used a razor to cut himself more than 50 times, and he left a letter claiming that he had killed Doris to get revenge on Bob and said that Bob was not involved in the crime in any way. It read in part, Although I began an elaborate plan to frame Bob for Doris's death as further leverage to get my money, he is innocent. Roger left a second note in his cell that read in part, In the event of my death, please contact Vanessa Leggett, and then listed her phone number. Vanessa had spent several hours interviewing Roger in the days before his death, but she refused to share what Roger told her. However, sources close to the investigation say that they believe Roger confessed to her that he and Bob carried out Doris's murder together. She also thought it was really suspicious that the prison never called her despite the second note that left that Roger left in his cell asking someone to do so if anything happened to him. Crazy. Yeah. So do you think he killed himself or do you think it was a hit? A hit. What do you think, Melanie? It's a hard one to tell, like, without knowing kind of what did anybody else have access to the jail cell. I mean, 50, um, you know, cuts. I mean, that's a lot. That's somebody who's either really, really not um, giving up on the, on it or it's somebody being held down. You would think there would just be more evidence, like, was somebody restrained? Did he fight back? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It, it definitely seems to me like it could go either way. Yeah. And, you know, if Bob was in the bookmaking business, he probably had all sorts of contacts. Yeah, I love what? it when she says bookmaking. It just oh. seems like such an old-fashioned <laughs> term. <was> bookie. <laughs> I wondered why she has not said what he said. Oh, well, I'm going to get to oh, that. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, as you might imagine, Bob's attorneys were ecstatic about this turn of events. They had been arguing all along that it was another voice on the audio tape with Roger and because that audio tape was really the only evidence they had against Bob, jurors in his trial found him not guilty for the murder of his wife, Doris. And for three years, that was the end of it. Until in 2001, when federal prosecutors decided to try him for a federal crime of killing his wife. Now, I'm not a law scholar here, but this definitely brought up a serious question about double, je about double jeopardy. Can someone be tried twice for the same crime? So prosecutors argued that, yes, they could, referencing a legal doctrine that allows federal and state governments to try the defendant for the same crime if the act violated both federal and state laws. That makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. My entire knowledge of Double Jeopardy comes from the Ashley Judd famous movie, Double Jeopardy. <laughs> I do love Ashley Judd. She's a good old Kentucky girl. I, I, I love that movie, and they go to New Orleans and, yeah, in Seattle. Yeah. We'll add it to our sleepover list. Oh, <laughs> Have you have you seen it? Uh, a long time ago. Yeah. Super long. I think we watched it <laughs> a few months ago. We went through a legal thriller um month after the um the Murdoch murders. murders. Yes. You're in there. Yes, after, it, it all goes back to the Murdoch murders. <laughs> after uh, watching hours and hours of the testimony, uh we started watching basically every legal movie that was out there and one night we watched Double Jeopardy. 
Interesting. Okay. I haven't seen it in years. So I'll have to check that out. But you're right. That's where my knowledge of double jeopardy comes from as well. So Bob's attorneys fought this all the way to the Supreme Court, which refused to hear their appeal. And so the trial was set. Of importance in this trial, Alana was Vanessa Leggett, who prosecutors believe had knowledge of the plot against Doris and could share what Roger had told her in those jailhouse interviews. You would think, right? Right. But claiming journalistic privilege, Vanessa refused to turn over her notes. As a result, she was held in contempt of court and went on to spend almost five months in jail. At the time, this was the longest that any journalist had been sentenced to jail and can in contempt of court for not turning over wow. evidence. Yeah. Somebody's broken that record by now, but at the time it was the longest. I kind of wonder why. I mean, at this point in time, the, the gentleman had died. I, 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 he said to talk to her. Yeah. I, I don't know. It just seems odd that she was willing to, or was she trying to get some sort of sympathy? Was she trying to, was she trying to raise her own profile? I just kind of wonder why would she go for that long to jail um, mm-hmm. and, what what was in it for? Well, she was her writing a book. She, oh, never mind. So I think she wanted to keep all of that information for her book, probably. Fair enough. Yeah. So fast forward two years to 2003, and this new trial is about to start. Bob gets on a plane in Texas with a fake passport and flies to Amsterdam. He's arrested when he lands entering the country with false documentation and an undeclared $90,000 in cash. His lawyers are furious with him, but ultimately help him gain representation in Amsterdam, where the two countries negotiate an extradition agreement. Amsterdam agrees to extradite Bob back to the U.S. if he is only prosecuted on passport fraud and tax evasion charges, but not the murder-for-hire plot for his wife. So the extradition agreement went on to say that Bob could be prosecuted for the murder-for-hire plot 30 days after completing any sentences handed down on the other two charges. Not surprisingly, Bob was found guilty on both charges and sentenced to five years for passport fraud and seven years for tax evasion. In his sentencing, the judge said, you have engaged in and lived a life that basically centered on illegal activity. A life that is lived and centered on illegal activity will eventually result in a great fall. So Bob went on to serve 12 years at a federal correctional facility and was released in January of 2012. According to the terms of his extradition agreement, he was indicted for Doris's murder again in federal court. But as they say, history has a way of repeating itself. And before he was tried for this crime, Bob left the country. It's unclear what Bob's doing now or where he's living, but it's believed that he lives in Europe. One of his daughters, Nikki, who was 20 at the time of this interview, said that everything he has done that conflicts with the law has been for me and my sister. Mm. Prosecutors have announced that they are not backing off the case, so this may not yet be the end of the Bob and Doris Angleton story. Yeah, I uh, read that both of the daughters have gone on to live very successful, educated lives, um, and but it does appear that they do both still support him. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I give some credence to the fact that the people closest to the Mm -hmm. crime, you know, know a lot more than we do, but it is odd. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Okay, so let's talk about the house. So, it sold in March of 2000, almost three years after the crime occurred, and it has not changed ownership since. If you wanted to buy a similar home in River Oaks today, it's going to cost you dearly. Somewhere in the 2.5 million to 3.5 million range, though estates in this neighborhood have sold upwards of $20 million in the last few years. 
And remember, we were talking about crime journalist Vanessa Leggett. She did go on to write The Murder of the Bookie's Wife. We'll, of course, link to the book in our show notes and on our website in case you want to dig deeper into the story. So ladies, pull out your pocketbooks. Would you live in this house? Would you list this house? I think I would live in the house because it wasn't gruesome. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty gruesome. She was shot like 12 well, times. She wasn't like, I don't know. We've we've talked about some really gruesome ones. That's and just true. in our research, I'm like, there's there's really bad things that could have happened in the house. And she was shot in the doorway. Is that I mean, bad? So this one was just in the foyer. Yeah, so just you right could there. spend most of your time in other parts yeah, of the house. Just run through the foyer when you're walking in. Oh my yeah. gosh, you are so funny. <laughs> I think Love I could it. live there. I could live there. I don't know. You always surprise me. And me too. Like <laughs> because sometimes you know, for a long time you were like, no, 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 every single one of them. Yeah. And then lately you've been a little bit more, been more, I guess more risky. You're, yeah. Getting uh, immune to it. It's getting kind of normalized, maybe. Mm. Maybe. I, I don't know. Just oh. as long as there are no ghosts, right? No ghosts. I don't do ghosts. I'll do murders in the foyer. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you'd live there, Melanie. Yeah. 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 In a heartbeat, right? Yeah. Now, my husband uh, likes to always talk about Houston being so humid and giving all this negative. And then Dallas this weekend was oh so Oh my gosh, it was so gross. Humid. Oh my gosh. It was awful. And so I was like, oh, so yeah. And he's like, yes, this weekend... Uh, Dallas is just like, you know, Houston. I think that's the biggest red, like, not red flag, because it's not a red flag, but that's the biggest detractor for me is that it's in Houston. I hate the Houston <laughs> weather so much. Like, I would live in this house. I would list the house, obviously, but I, I couldn't live in Houston. I think there's definitely a divide between Dallas people and Houston people. And I think I walk the, the line because I actually love lots of things about Houston. I love that the downtown area has kind of gotten much more vibrant in recent years. I love the food scene is really, really good in Houston. Um, I like the diversity. There's much more diversity of people. I like the fact that it's only an hour to the beach. I mean, you know, it's Galveston, but still. but still, I mean, like I grew up going to the beach like all the time. So that was kind of like a fun aspect for it. Um, and I do think it is kind of like a diverse economy there. And nowadays there's a lot of oil. I mean, my dad was oil. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the heat and the humidity, it, it's not um, over, overplayed. It's true. Okay. There's a lot of bad drivers there too. Sorry. There's a lot of bad drivers in Houston. I'll agree with that. Yeah. So is this the first one where we've all agreed we would live there? I think so. Oh, I think so. I think, think it so. might be. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope everybody will join us next week as we record from our new studio space and share another okay. interesting crime and property with you all. Thank you. So uh, once again, uh, you know, I used to always laugh when we listened to podcasts and they would always say, like it, download, subscribe, be it, uh, all that. But now that we've launched, it's all true. So please like us and uh, subscribe and tell a friend. Perfect. See you all next week. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's feature, Crime Estate, you could find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimestatepodcast.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.